August 27th, 2015. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's Neurobiology Podcast. Today we are welcoming back Parath Chandrasekharan, who is a friend of the podcast. He's been um, a guest before, as well as a panelist a number of times, so he basically needs no introduction, but I'm going to give one anyway. Um, he's Associate Professor of Communication Sciences and Disorders and Director of the Sound Brain Lab at UT Austin. His lab is using multiple tools, uh, multiple brain-based measures to get at the neural bases of auditory and speech perception, experience-dependent plasticity, and learning. Hi, Brian. Hey, it's great to be back. How's it going? Around the room, we've got Charlie Wilson. Hi. We've got Todd Troyer. Hello. Nicole Wicha. Hi. And me, I'm your host, Salma Karashi. There's so many interesting things to talk about at so many levels in your work, but I, I want to start with something that I especially love about the recent stuff, uh, at least this is how it, I sort of see it. It's, it's that you're kind of pulling speech perception into um, terms that take a bold step toward categorization and eventually meaning, because usually there's a pretty pretty big distinction between the two, and people are either studying the perception or they're studying meaning, or usually it's, you know, they're kind of trying to get at one. It's, it's always a little bit obscure to me, and so you're kind of doing it really, truly, and what I'm referring to is, and it's maybe a bit, a bit of a leap, but maybe we can talk about some of sure. that. Um, you're, so I'm talking about this dual learning model system for uh, auditory categorization and the idea that, that there are perhaps two separate systems, a reflexive and a reflective system, and they map onto different networks in the brain, and that one kind of is recruited initially and then transfers to another. I mean, can you explain this to our audience? Because I'm not doing a great job. So uh, uh, my, my primary area of research, uh, what I was trained up to be was, uh, you know, speech scientists and uh, study speech perception. And uh, um, much of how we've conceived speech perception has been purely a perceptual process. Um, and uh, when, when I joined the uh, University of Texas at Austin, I started uh, integrating with, uh, with folks in psychology and, and, uh, and cognitive and learning sciences uh, who... who we're interested in perception, but we're in interested in categorization as well, and and uh, this idea that uh, you know um, uh, you constantly categorize information all the time, and at that time there's uh, there was a push in the field uh, to uh, to start thinking of speech as a categorization process instead of a categorical perception process. And I think the distinction is important because we categorize speech information all the time. So speech is produced by <clears throat> multiple talkers. It's highly variable. Um, it has multiple uh, auditory dimensions that you need to extract information. Um, and so for, for the most part, um, you're taking this very variable signal and matching it onto a template. Uh, which cognitive psychologists have studied as a categorization process, and and so we we you know so it, I think more than anything it was a terminology thing, uh, but that terminology change was important because uh, category learning and categorization has been extremely well studied from a neural perspective. Um, this idea that uh, sensory signals are mapped onto rules and mapped onto uh, motor output. Um, has been has been documented, and um, this concept of multiple learning systems mediating um, categorization was already you know well accepted in vision. So we derived this model based on on vision. So the dual system model um, 
argues that there are two competing learning systems, um, and we call it reflective and reflexive, partly because uh, um, explicit and implicit and procedural versus uh, hypothesis testing, these are the other terminologies that have been going around, has been controversial, and it's very field-specific. So uh, one, of the, um, one of the advances we made and that got us going was actually to invent new terminology, and suddenly we were way more acceptable. Um, so reflective and reflexive just came out of that, uh, just you know, getting to talk, getting many different pe- people to talk in you know on the same page. But am so, I but am I overstating it? Because to me, it, it does seem you're getting a little closer to meaning. I mean, you're categorizing sounds, but isn't that it? I mean, you're, you're also talking about eventually getting to meaning. It seems like it's a step closer. Is this like not an interesting point? A step closer to? To, to to actual semantics, to meaning, to, to putting things in categories that actually mean something to an organism. Sure, sure. Because these are behaviorally sure. relevant I, things that And, and categorization is a fundamental process across species. So all species, uh, 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 the majority of species, categorize. And so, you know, that is, to do that, they rely on the neural system. And so, so that is fundamental. Yeah. There's no reason to think that we would be any different, so we relying on, on similar systems. So I think someone's getting at something. I, maybe I can help. Yes, you so can translate. If I hear, if I hear a sound that means a car is coming in my direction, it, so there I'm a, attaching a meaning to some categorized sound. Is that different from the way I categorize the meaning of a word? Or are those basically just the same thing? And that's a great empirical question. And I, I want to say only has been, you know, we've started addressing that in the last few years. Uh, are those fundamentally the same uh, systems? Because uh, for the most part, speech has been uh, dominated by this idea that speech is special. Um, and this is a, this is a very... Uh, you know, uh, this concept has been around in speech perception for the longest time. We're arguing that it's not, that it's not special. Um, and uh, and that, you know, the systems that you use in categorizing auditory information more generally is what you use in learning new speech categories. So, so oh, I was going to say that there's a um, another podcast, uh, uh, podcast person, Fred Dick, didn't we have him give yeah. a talk? Yeah. yeah, a long time ago, but he gave a presentation on his category learning stuff, and they, he's addressed this question of what you just said, Charlie. Um, so it turns out that you get similar activation patterns in the brain if you hear a bat uh, swinging, uh, hitting a ball, or you hear the word bat. Um, so you, the meaning areas seem to be a lot overlapped in these and so the, the idea here is sort of this embodied idea of language so, so you're not it's not special it's just tapping into what we're the structures that we already have in the brain and then you're overlaying this semantics uh, lexical semantic system on top of it and using similar networks so it's a little bit of a partial answer <laughs> to your question and broadly speaking i think this is not a, a new feature in in language uh uh, the concept of dual systems, so the declarative procedural model, for example, suggests that you know language has multiple components. Some are learned more implicitly, some are learned more explicitly. 
uh, vocabulary, for example, is something that's learned explicitly. So, you know, when somebody's studying for the GRE exam, that's the first thing that they learn because that's easily learned by an explicit process. Whereas grammar may be learned more uh, implicitly. So, some you know, you have a fundamental idea that something doesn't sound grammatically right, but you can't articulate why that is. So this this idea of dual systems in, in language has been has been around, uh, and we brought it to to the speech domain. So can you talk about how some of the mapping has worked out? Because you've looked at sort of mapped this onto areas of the brain specifically. So can you talk about that? Because I don't think you talked about it. Yeah, absolutely. So this, we did the simplest ex- experiment. Uh, you know, just have people categorize. Uh, or learn to categorize in the uh, uh, magnetic resonance imaging, just MRI scanner. Um, so we, uh, while we measure their uh, their brain responses, um, so that the the idea was, you know, what neural systems are individuals using um, when they're categorizing or learning to categorize new information. What we found was that um, uh, across learning, uh, learners use both systems. So when we say systems. We, we hypothesized that um, the reflective system is made up of the prefrontal cortex predominantly um, and the anterior cingulate and um, the, the hippocampus. Um, the, the reflexive system is more uh, striately dominant, um, composed of the putamen and the, the body and tail of the striatum. And, you know, we found that all these regions were online when somebody is learning new information. So the question then was which relates to learning success because uh, our participants achieved different levels of learning. Um, and we found that learning speech categories, um, when people activate their striatal system, they learn the best. And when they switch from um, um, computational strategies that, that require verbalizable rules to more implicit strategies, their putamen uh, shows shows more activation. So, so we think you know when you learn some new information, uh, both systems come online. But at the end of learning, the system, um, the putamen, uh, is what's responsible for learning success. So success is a measure of how quickly you learn or how accurate how accurate you are at, at the end of training. So I would get uh, maybe this also relates a little bit to Salma's initial. Question: Seems like well, you're you're painting a fairly broad brush of success in speech perception, right? So you're doing a very simple task, which is a very low level discrimination with no context. Um, whereas a lot of the things really in language and speech perception, you have a lot of context that has to do with meaning about what the word is likely, to, what the sound that you're likely to hear is based on the whole lot other kinds of things, and that very well may be. Uh, you need a lot of the uh, reflective system to improve performance in that task. And because you're doing a low-level, no-context uh, task where you don't need to reflect, you just need to uh, say whether it's you know, in one of four categories, then that's the system that's really the most effective for your task. So, you, so you've done some of this. Yeah, so, uh, you know, uh, so we, we do have a reductionist approach, but even within this reductionist approach, it's not like uh, you know uh, the prefrontal cortex doesn't impact performance at all. So the reflective system actually dominates learning for a good reason. So we found that, for example, when you give uh, participants uh, instruction on what strategies to use, uh, they be- they they're better at learning, which would 
which would it's it's counterintuitive when you think of a completely competitive system. Um, what we are increasingly finding is that you need the reflective system to bootstrap the reflexive system. So all learning in individuals with a mature prefrontal cortex is uh, prefrontally driven, so it's reflective, dominant. Um, but we also found that the keys to becoming really successful, so being very reflective gets you to some amount of success, but the key is to switch off at some point once you've achieved some level of success uh, to more reflexive learning. So. Uh, absolutely, there's a good reason that we are reflective uh, and analytical about things because it kind of gets us to a place where uh, you know we can get some amount of uh, rewards and successes that are needed for reflexive learning. So you have some your other line of work and the speech and noise um, kind of gets to that too. Right? So you have depending on how much you can rely on the contextual information. Um, you seem to switch on and off these different systems, right? Can you talk about that work that you have? Sure. Um, so we've done uh, a lot of uh, studies on, on speech processing in challenging listening environments. Uh, and there's the, an the, the interesting parallel that you're referring to. Uh, um, we, we've looked at how individuals process information, speech information, in a variety of noise types. And we broadly define noise in the world as being largely energetic, so that, that masks the sound without carrying a meaning, or uh, informational. So this interferes at a more central level of processing. So you can perceive, uh, as a practical example, you can perceive speech in, in the background of uh, a, uh, aircraft noise. So that, that is somewhat distracting, but not really. You can easily you know, let go of that. Um, or you can perceive speech noise in a, in a cocktail party environment, right? Um, where um, there's interference at, at linguistic and, uh, you know, even somebody's uh, speech may be more engaging. So there's a lot of interference at most central levels. Um, we found that uh, uh, this, the prefrontal, uh, you know, um, system is critical in passing out speech in these, in these information kind of environments. Um, so we've, uh, we've shown that uh, there's a lot of individual differences in how well you do in this kind of situation, but not necessarily when there's energetic masking around. And it depends on how well you use cues like uh, visual cues or uh, uh, lexical semantic contextual cues. And these are all processes that engage the prefrontal system. So by no means uh, am I saying that that system is unimportant to speech. It's just, uh, it's just you know, uh, it, these are complementary systems. So they help out in, you know, the world has a vast array of processes involved in it, and and so you just uh, you know uh, neatly subdivide it into what's optimally learned by this system and optimally learned by that system. Can you take a minute to say something about how you can tell this stuff because you know people say prefrontal system does this and the, some other part of the cortex does that and and it almost sounds like of course everybody knows that and some and it, it has a sort of Live quality to it to me, and and I'd like to know, you know, how do we really know that the prefrontal cortex is essential for this and not for that? So, uh, at the simplest level, you put people in the in the uh, in the scanner and look at what brain regions activate when they're doing a particular task, and we've done that, and that's often inconvenient, and you know. Uh, uh, 
expensive. So the the other alt- alternatives we have is we control the ta- task characteristics or the or the or the stimulus characteristics in a way that we know uh, involves uh, prefrontal function or striatal function from our prior experience. So one thing is uh, uh, working memory. We know is is uh, is is is, a system, is something is a process that needs. Um, needs prefrontal uh, function. So uh, when we disrupt working memory in some way, we look at to look to see if that affects category learning or categorization. So that's one proxy of saying that uh, this relates to more reflective or analytical function. Uh, we've also changed the, the the feedback that we provide participants uh, in uh, in the task that either promotes more reflective function or promotes easy use of working memory. That's one way to tell if it's uh, prefrontal or not. Um, we've also studied genes. Uh, these are genes that uh, modulate uh, dopamine function in the prefrontal cortex. And we found that um, uh, variation in this gene impacts speech and noise processing only in informational masking, not in energetic condition. And it also impacts uh, uh, speech learning. These are different proxies. Um, it's easy to talk about one being prefrontal, one being striatal, but there are multiple corticostriatal ru- uh, loops, um, so it's a little more complicated than than just parsing this out as cortical and this is subcortical. Of course, one of the biggest sources of input to the striatum is the prefrontal cortex, and one of the biggest targets of the prefrontal cortex is the striatum. So to put them in such opposite roles seems super odd to me. Yeah, the, the structural connectivity, though, gives us some idea. So <coughs> the, 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 the head of the cordate receives much of the prefrontal uh, connections. The body and tail, uh, and, and, uh, uh, the body and tail don't as much. And we find that the auditory cortic- cortical connectivity is much more to the body and tail. And so we, we, we've, we think that's part of the more reflexive learning that we're predicting underlies speech processing. So where is that where are the cortical projections to those uh, the the body and the tail come from? Uh, from the auditory cortex. Just like all throughout the, the temporal stream? It's, it's, it's diffuse. It's highly diffuse. So there's uh, I mean we said the example of working memory and there is a lot of assumption when you're looking at these cardio neuroscience measures, right? You were saying and I mean, I think what people typically do is they try to manipulate their experiment somehow so that you think you're looking at the one variable that's important. So in your case, working memory or, um, right, so you have some kind of subtraction measure to get rid of the rest of the brain that's probably active um, to some degree. Uh, But then there's also, based on what you were talking about, your assumptions, I mean, you are taking... For, for example, I mean, you're saying prefrontal, but, but I think you have a more specific idea of where it is in the prefrontal. For example, for working memory, typically dorsolateral prefrontal, which is, there's some support from the animal literature as well, right? There's single cell recording that working memory activates dorsolateral prefrontal more heavily. Right. So, um, yeah, in your, in your data, do you do... Typical subtraction measures, is that how you assume that you get more prefrontal versus more basal ganglia activity? Uh, uh, yes, so uh, uh, 
so we, we look at uh, performance in, in the final block of training relative to, to the first block of training. And it's, it's a relative difference in activation across uh, the prefrontal system that we think is more reflective and the striatal system that we think is more reflexive. So, so that gives us an idea. Um, but these systems are online throughout learning. It's just a relative difference that, that dominates learning performance. So there's some um, uh, proposals in the developmental literature that the reason, one of the reasons maybe, that children are so good at learning um, procedural tasks because the prefrontal cortex isn't fully developed and so they can't really engage it as well. Um, we, we've, we've looked at children learning these speech categories, so the simple prediction would be that they would be better at it because the prefrontal system is, uh, isn't uh, interfering as much in learning. And we find the opposite. So uh, uh, children, so this is uh, children from 6 to about, uh, and adolescents, so 6 to 18, actually not as good as uh, adults in, in learning these, these speech categories, learning new speech categories. Um, so the prefrontal system uh, plays much more than just a competitive role. It bootstraps early learning in the in the reflexive system. So, you know, again, uh, it sounds like this. This is these are two separate systems that are completely distinct, distinct from each other. But in reality, is that it's a little more complex. So the the reflexive system depends on the reflective system, but not the other way around. So the reflective system is fairly independent of the reflexive system. That's 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 the prediction. Um, so early learning in the reflexive system depends on how well you learn analytically, but at some point you let go, and that's that leads to more and more success in in learning. Uh, I, I wanted to highlight um, some work by uh, Laurie Holt uh, from from uh, uh, Carnegie Mellon. Um, she's done some some really cool work with uh, video game training. This is this is an, this is an example of. Uh, something that is really reflexive. So uh, one of the one of the um, well cited problems in the field is uh, in the field of speech learning comes from um, Japanese listeners learning the la ra um, um, distinction. So it sounds fairly easy, but uh, if your language system doesn't have this distinction, so they're basically one category in Japanese lis uh, listeners. Uh, it's really hard to tell road from load. Uh, and Japanese listeners, even after a month of training, so, uh, many, many sessions of training, barely do above uh, chance performance on this, right? So that sounds crazy. Um, well, with with this video game training, where so the, there are alien characters that are... Uh, that are linked to these uh, these differences between uh, between categories. So so participants are, aren't trying to learn these speech categories. They're learning learning to shoot the alien. Okay, so it's it's uh, it's indirect way of teaching these category distinctions. But within a session, within a day of training, uh, they become highly proficient. Right. So so the classic idea being that learning is so difficult in adults. That concept really needs to change because I think once you adapt the the training paradigm to suit how the, the you know the brain changed fundamentally changed or organized in an adult, you start changing how well people can learn. So kids can learn without that, but adults need it turned into a video game for them to learn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I wanted to talk about um, 
some of the factors that kind of delimit the push-pull from one to another? Because you've looked at, you're looking at a lot of different factors, and you mentioned the DRD4, the dopamine receptor genes, mm -hmm. as well as the FOXP2. Mm -hmm. All of this kind of makes me think of the bilingual advantage also. So this idea that, you know, you get this, you have this, as a, as a monolingual, you have this crystallized sense of a rule-based, you know, system for language, and then as a bilingual, perhaps you're not as rule-based and you're not as crystallized and you're able to pull away and be more reflexive. How do you talk about that in terms of genes? <laughs> like, how, like how, are you, how do you parse this into a framework that actually kind of helps you get at something meaningful? Because I, I, it's also amorphous in my head. Sure, sure. Uh, maybe I can go through the history of this, right? Um, when, when, we, when we started working on this dual systems idea, it, it was um, situated in vision, um, and uh, we, we kind of started applying it in audition. Um, irrespective of whether it's, you, it's reflective or reflexive, uh, dopamine is the key reinforcement signal. So the idea is that for both learning systems, you need feedback. It's just that the dynamic of feedback differs so what is optimal feedback for these systems differs. Both need a dopamine, dopaminergic reinforcement signal. So that itself meant that we were only now searching within dopamine genes to, to start you know, fleshing out this theory. Uh, so we're not looking at all genes, but just the uh, dopamine genes. Um, and the, the second thing that we started doing was looking at those that are preferentially expressed in the prefrontal cortex versus those that are preferentially expressed in the striatum. So the DRD4 gene that you mentioned and um, the COMT gene, that's that's very variation. The variation in this gene is very well studied in, in humans, um, all impact prefrontal function. And uh, DRD2 is another gene that impacts striatal function. So some of the work that we're currently doing looks at individual differences in the expression of these genes. Um, in terms of a single nucleotide polymorphism, just just normal variation in these single genes to see if uh, if that impacts learning, and we do show that it impacts learning. So FOXP2 is another gene that's expressed both in the basal ganglia, so in the striatum, as well as in the prefrontal cortex. So in fact, these are two primary central nervous system sites for FOXP2 as a gene. This gene is extremely well studied uh, in terms of speech and language acquisition. So there's work done that showed that uh, um, uh, you know, family, uh, a family that had severe speech and language acquisition issues, um, half the family had, had this, these issues where they had uh, you know, developmental speech uh, production and, um, and learning issues. Um, they had a missense mutation in the FOXP2 gene. Um, so we looked at the FOXP2 gene uh, for multiple reasons. One, that it was previously associated with speech and language acquisition. Some really, really cool work in animal uh, literature that shows that when you, when you add these two amino acids that differs between human and animal models, uh, it changes the, the basal ganglia in highly significant ways. So these humanized mice models start showing some interesting changes. One of those changes is changes in dopamine levels, uh, changes in, in striatal plasticity. Um, but I think what's really cool, so this was a paper that was published last year in, in, in the proceedings in National Academy of Sciences, where they showed um, that this modulated the balance between uh, 
between declarative and procedural functions. So a parallel between what we call reflective and reflexive. So that's how we started looking at uh, FOXP2. And that also uh, impacts learning. So the, the, the broad approach is a candidate gene approach where we're picking one gene from, you know, hundreds, right? So it's, it's not a random process, though, because we're looking at what we think has a neurobiological impact. If you have one gene that, say, affects the reflexive system, if you have a better reflexive system, use more reflexive system, you're better on reflexive tasks. Is there any way to look at the, the system that regulates the trade-off or the balance between the systems? Because uh, you could have the gene affect how well you are at, say, flipping between the different systems rather than one or the other. And whether you can tell the difference or whether there's anything known or individual differences on switching versus... Is there a scheduler that switches you? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Our hypothesis is untested is that uh, FOXP2 uh, variation mediates that that. Uh, push-pull balance between the reflective and reflexive system, we're still working on understanding that. Um, but from a neural perspective, it's really hard to look at a neural signature uh, of how a person has a better switch. It's just fundamentally very difficult to, to, to run that experiment. It's also difficult to document when that switch happened. No, but it's always this thing. If you have, if you have these cortical studies where you look at the... Uh, some uh, genetic subtype, and then you look at performance on behavior. If you have a behavioral task that's explicitly uh, depends on switching, right, or the rate of switch, if you change the, the, the dominant strategy or something, then you could potentially get uh, some performance measure of switchability, of flexibility, and then look at correlates that way. Right. Um, you know, we'd still need to do that study to find out. That would be interesting, right? Um, but to go back to your question, um, speech category learning is that kind of task. We don't think it's uh, reflective optimal or if it's reflexive optimal. It, it starts off being reflective optimal and then you need to switch to a reflexive system. So, so you know, FOXP2 impacts speech learning. So we do think that's, that's a good measure of this, this dynamicity between the two systems. The, much of the work in, in visual neuroscience and visual uh, category learning has been with these uh, experimental experimental constraints stimuli that are either reflective optimal or reflexive optimal. Um, and when they create these hybrid stimuli, participants don't learn. So when, when the category structure is hybrid, so it's optimally set up to be learned by both systems, then participants don't learn. So it would be an example of one versus the other kind of stimulus. So we, we, we have for these category structures set up on two-dimensional space where you can break down the four categories into verbalizable rules um, or change the, the category structure in a way that you can't use verbalizable rules. And our finding is generally that people can learn both categories, but when when you when they come when they finish the task and they they, uh, they you know you do an introspection and ask them how did you learn when they learned a little reflective optimal category they, they can tell you what rules they use um, when they when you when you ask them how they learned the reflexive optimal they usually either tell you rules that don't work so they confabulate rules or they just say you know I just went with my gut but in both cases they, they are learning. All of your tasks are linearly separable. You ever ask people to do a 
test that isn't linearly separable. We haven't done that. What, and there what was a famous, famously, there was this argument that neural networks couldn't possibly be how we do things because they couldn't solve these tests that aren't linearly separable, and obviously we can. And I just wondered if we actually can or not. I mean, ever, ever trying. <laughs> uh, I do believe a lot of real-world uh, speech categories are probably, uh, you know, that that would be the case. Um, you know, it would be interesting to test one such. So the categories that we've been used uh, are solved by, are linearly separable. Um, that's that's the other thing. Once you start uh, getting more real-world, things get way more complicated. So, that, so right now, I think we've struck the balance between, uh, you know, um, naturalistic stimuli, but also a reductionist approach. So it, <laughs> what would be an example of something that's not linearly separable? Or like two streams of... of the classic stuff? thing that people always use is exclusive or. So... Oh, okay. If you try to draw the table for exclusive or, you can't really draw a straight line that separates the ones from the zeros. But that's like just a toy example that meant to Wait, I mean, represent a uh, huge Stop model. consonant differentiation, so different, differentiating, um, uh, you know, bar versus pa. Uh, the way we study it is look at, uh, look at voice onset time, that's a feature. But in the real world, B and P are separated by at least 13 to 14 different dimensions. And there's such beautiful work from the 1960s that show that each of these dimensions can individually be used to classify. Right? <laughs> so now you create an n-dimensional space, that's the real world. So it's, it's obviously way more multidimensional than, than our, so our approach is somewhat reductionist. It has been in the field in general. Um, yeah. So I, I don't know. That would be that would be great to study. I, I just can't think of a way to to boil that down to a two by two design. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. I was curious about. So you work with the frequency following response that shows that there's individual variability, um, potentially in the inferior colliculus and uh, how it's following the sounds coming in and the what and so some people are have better precision in following the sound than others. Um, and then you showed that FOXP2 also has individual variability in learning categories. Oh, and this, this frequently following response has to do with people that have better precision or better at learning new categories. So do you see any connection between those? Or is... I mean, that's, that's in... I'd love to merge those ideas, right? Uh, one one straightforward question would be whether these individual differences are related to each other. Uh, we haven't explored that systematically. Um, we probably need a lot more participants than what we have right now. Um, over the last few years, we've found several contributors towards uh, individual differences in, in learning success. We haven't put together a model that... that that parcels out individual contributions. So typically what we do is restrict, for example, we've studied musical training quite a bit, and that influences 
learning speech categories, so positively influences. So there's musicians are better at learning these categories. But in our other experiments, we have control for musical training, so that that isn't a factor. So I'd love to do a study that, and that would involve a lot of participants, where it's unconstrained. So we we don't restrict anybody and and have them learn and collect all these details, including genetics. That would answer that, and, uh, or at least help us parcel out. The relative contributions. So you just need two uh, thousand trials in the swab of saliva, <laughs> and, <laughs> and a couple of hours of uh, testing these <laughs> these, uh, these participants. You just have to do a uh, get a a, a, a cheap uh, do it at home system, and then people plug into the internet. And you can mail it out, and then you can have all these things are on the test tons of data that's crappy, <laughs> but you got a lot of it. You know, so, so crowdsource it. I mean, yeah. uh, people are people are test genetically profiling themselves, and are happy to share that information. So you know, um, tests that used to be so expensive are now about twenty dollars per person. So, but the brain following response is pretty low tech. You could get people to to potentially do that. Oh, okay, the auditory thing may be harder to control. I guess you got headphones. Okay. So, there you go. Yeah. For those who want to learn about more about the frequency, the FFR, that's in our previous podcast. So uh-huh. I know we kind of just touched on that. So there is some backstory on that. But uh, I want to thank you for joining us today, Bharat. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thank you.